This is Living Lean, the show that teaches you how to apply the science of nutrition and training to sustainably create your leanest, strongest body and build the most confident version of yourself. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bear. Let's get into the show. All right, what is going on? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by none other than Danny Lennon. Danny, thank you for being here, man. And I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much for uh, asking me on the podcast. Of course, of course. So for the listeners that might not know, can you just give us a quick background on who you are, what you're up to? Sure. So I run a company called Sigma Nutrition, and our primary focus is putting out evidence-based information on nutritional science as that relates to both health and performance. And probably what we're most well known for is being the podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio, which has been running since early 2014. And outside of that, a lot of the rest of the stuff I do is content creation. So I am quite fortunate. I get to do quite a lot of lectures at conferences and seminars in usual circumstances. 2020 may be a bit of an exception. And then uh, we also do written uh, informational stuff as well as online lectures and then there's also a coaching arm to our business where we have a number of pretty good coaches who work with a variety of different people um from my own background academically has been an undergraduate degree in biology and physics followed by a master's degree in nutritional sciences and then off the back of that i started working in nutrition consultancy and then putting out information and then Sigma Nutrition was born, and here we are about seven years later. And uh, that's a kind of overview. I think that might be uh, nice and simple for, for people to get to grips with kind of my context. Perfect. And again, for the listeners that if you don't already listen to Sigma Nutrition Radio, I can't recommend it enough. Again, like we were saying off air, I've taken so much from your show. It's something I've been listening to for years and years. So First of all, I want to say thank you for that. Um, what kind of sparked you to dive into what pushed you so strongly towards the nutrition spectrum of things? Because you were initially a PT, mm. right? Um, no. So my original background off the back of my undergraduate degree was actually a teacher. So I was teaching uh, for a year in a high school here in Ireland. Okay. Uh, I was teaching physics and biology and, and mathematics. And during that time, my main focus outside of that work and really my, my main focus all through college was training either for various different sports that I played. Um, whether that was when in my younger days, that was like soccer, uh, Gaelic football, which is a sport here in Ireland. And then once I got into college, I was doing quite a lot of jujitsu, uh, dabbling with some MMA. And really as, as a way to get better at my sports, I started lifting in the gym and I started to try and read about ways to help my own performance. And so as I went to college and started doing a science degree, I learned, oh, there's these things called academic journals and I can read research papers about things related to science. So it became like a hobby just in my spare time to read things that might help me. And I got really fascinated by the nutrition element of that. And right. so after about a year of teaching, I realized I like the teaching component, but maybe not some of the other elements of the job. Uh, but I really love doing this nutrition stuff. And that's when I went back and did my master's. So the initial pull towards nutrition was um, for that, that reason that I was just, I became fascinated by some of the, the science 
and also could see things that were applicable to myself and that I don't think are commonly well understood by a lot of people. Right. And then once you start to understand them, it, it's kind of cool. So that, that was the initial pull, I guess. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Interesting. I was just curious about that. So main reason I wanted to have you on um, is kind of to talk to us about a topic, the topic of chrononutrition or circadian biology. So I would love if you could just dive into what is circadian biology and why it really matters to the listener, why it's important? Sure. So <clears throat> circadian biology comes under a, 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 the umbrella of uh, chronobiology, and we'll, we'll probably talk about chrononutrition as well. Chrono meaning related to times. So there's a time component to it, or the, a time phenomena. So within biology more broadly, we see many different processes run on cycles of varying lengths. And we can categorize them based on those lengths. And circadian relates to these cycles that run at approximately 24 hours, which kind of matches up with our solar day. And within the human body, there are many of these processes, whether that's hormones or otherwise, that run with a certain pattern that just repeats over and over each day. And again, at approximately that, that 24-hour period. Now, left to our own devices, it's close to 24 hours, but not precisely 24 hours. And so we can rely on cues in our environment that can like fine tune those cycles to a more precise 24 hours. So they match up with the time of the day that we want, because we want certain hormones to be higher at certain parts of the day and lower at others. Um, and so we can use environmental stimuli, the main one being exposure to light as essentially a signal to our body when it is daytime and when it is nighttime. And we can kind of fine tune things to that period of time. So this area of circadian biology will relate to these uh, processes that are related to these 24 hour time period for certain cycles. Um, and then as we get into how this relates to nutrition, probably when we look at this area of chrononutrition, it's that kind of intersection of how does when we eat our food or what foods we choose to eat impact some of these uh, circadian rhythms. And then also the hormones that run on certain circadian rhythms, does that make certain times of the day better or worse for consuming certain foods or food in general? And that's those types of questions are what spark this field of chrononutrition. Okay. Okay. So then on this topic of, Basically, how is how is your circadian rhythm in or out of sync with the 24 or like you said, potentially slightly longer than 24 hour like um, day or a 24 hour cycle? What are the potential negatives we see? Like, why does this matter? What are the potential negatives from circadian misalignment or this not being in sync? Right. So I suppose in terms of circadian rhythms being in alignment, the easy simplified way maybe for people to conceptualize this is do we have a matching up of light during the day with the period of time where we're usually awake where we're usually being active and then when we're consuming nutrients and on the flip side when it's dark that should be the time that matches up with restfulness uh with fasting and with um being asleep so when we have a mismatch of those, like you said, we can call something to call called 
circadian misalignment where some of those rhythms are out of sync how they should be so an example for people might be someone that does night shift work um they are now changing their usual wake time that is now pushing them into circadian misalignment now some of the things that we see here would be uh dysregulation of blood glucose or someone's blood sugar um so when someone has circadian misalignment they'll tend to see higher blood glucose readings but uh, blood glucose excursions stay higher for longer as well so that means they may be for the same type of meal they're consuming will have a worse blood glucose response and that's one of the main ones you see similarly um free fatty acids in the bloodstream can stay higher and, and elevated for longer um you can then have second order effects that may be related to that circadian misalignment but also like changes in sleep so you can have jet lag like symptoms um and essentially what you see what jet lag actually is is a a phase shift with sir related to circadian rhythms because you've traveled across time zones and that change of a few hours has now caused a circadian shift of those couple of hours which is that causing some circadian misalignment. And then those symptoms that you get that we call jet lag are a function of that. So basically uh, most of the processes in the body get screwed up to some extent or get altered in some way when we have some degree of circadian misalignment. And there can be differences in, in the degree of misalignment there is. So for example, traveling across uh, a time zone where you have a phase shift of one hour is going to be very different from one that's like six or seven hours. And so having someone to have complete circadian misalignment would be swapping their normal waking time with normal sleeping time. So a complete flip around uh, of that. And so anything in between can have maybe milder symptoms relative to that point, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So when we're talking about the the quote unquote body clocks or the body clock that sets these rhythms, um, typically it's just thought of as like your brain, but there are multiple clocks or multiple um, within your body. We have multiple clocks, correct? Right. Yeah. So we, we often talk about this idea of our body clock being off or uh, when someone has a change of their sleep pattern or when they have jet lag. And we do have one central circadian clock, like you say, that is located in the brain, uh, specifically at the hypothalamus, something called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or the SCN. And this is like a bunch of like 30,000 neuronal cells. And that's the main regulator of these circadian rhythms. So that's our central clock that sets circadian rhythms in these various different uh uh, to, uh, processes around the body. Now, what we also have though is circadian clocks that are located in tissues all around the body. These are what we call peripheral clocks. So they are influenced by that central clock, but they can also be influenced by other things, which is where the kind of nutrition component comes in. For example, feeding or activity can have an influence on some of these peripheral clocks and different tissues around the body without having that same effect on that central clock. So there's circadian clocks in uh, gut tissue and muscle tissue and fat tissue in in all these different organ and and tissue systems around the body. And so 
having some degree of circadian alignment, now we can also think of it, do we have a matching up between our uh, central uh, circadian clock that's driving certain rhythms and the rhythms that are being driven by these peripheral clocks, or are we seeing a mismatch between them? And so, yeah, it's, it's more accurate to think of this one main central clock located in the brain that orchestrates most of it and influences those other clocks. But we have these peripheral clocks and tissues all around the body that can be influenced by other external factors outside of the, the central clock. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So then I'd love to dive into some application. So the, in this kind of where we really get into this topic of chrononutrition. So when we're talking about what can we do or most part for the most part, what can we do then to like, what are your order priorities when it comes to aligning circadian rhythm, for example? So I think that the, where the application of nutrition comes in, we could probably look at a few different components. And so how I usually try and conceptualize this is we could think of it as number one, at what time of day we may consume a certain meal. Uh, we could then look at the consistency in our meal timing from day to day. We could then also look at the length of our feeding window um, or our fasting window. And each of these can give us different pieces of information. Um, and we also within that kind of feeding window, we can have the question of where we put most of our daily calories within that said window. And is there a better or worse one? So these are all slightly separate questions that may get us to a point of, is there a best way to eat or are there better ways to eat from this circadian perspective? Um, at the moment, this is quite a new field. So there is stuff emerging all the time. Um, and so at the moment, it's trying to piece together a lot of the mechanistic stuff that makes sense with some of the emerging human trials. And some areas have more evidence than others, and some outcomes will have more evidence than others. So what I think is a, a, maybe an overview of some of the applications, and we can maybe dive into specifics then if you want, is it seems pretty clear that it's a good idea to have consistency in our approximate meal timings from a from a day-to-day -day basis so not having to eat at the exact same time but probably roughly our meals from day to day being at approximately the same time and an approximately the same meal frequency tends to be beneficial particularly for things like uh, glycemic uh, health so blood uh, sugar excursions for example whereas you see more likely to be associated with deleterious effects when someone has a radically changing meal timing from day to day or meal frequency day to day. I think eating a lot of calories at biological night is probably the most consistent find that we see is problematic. So if someone consumes a meal, let's say during the middle of the night versus if they had the exact same meal earlier in the day, you get a worse blood glucose response. You tend to see a worse free fatty acids uh, response. You, you basically can't metabolize that meal effectively, specifically for carbohydrates and fat. Uh, there is a case someone could make that protein is actually digested relatively well during those hours. However, you definitely see deleterious effects of eating during biological night. So staying away from that is a good idea. From there, you can probably make the extension that close to bedtime for most people, and let's presume they have a typical uh, sleep schedule. And we can talk about 
exceptions to that, like shift workers in a moment. But for a typical sleep schedule, having a large amount of calories late at night before bed is, is probably also uh, deleterious for that reason. And there's a number of mechanisms why that might be the case. One, for example, related to circadian rhythms would be the pattern of our insulin sensitivity across the day. So insulin sensitivity starts out highest in the morning and then declines throughout the day. And so having, let's say, a large feeding of carbohydrates just before bed may uh, is consuming them in a state where someone is less insulin sensitive in, earlier in the day. And that's why their blood glucose may stay higher for a bit longer than normal or even peak higher than at other times during the day. Um, now, again, uh, I, we should be clear not to mix this up with other like old school myths of if you eat carbohydrates after 6 p.m., it automatically gets stored as fat. That's not what we're saying here at all. Right. Uh, in fact, it's more a case of there may be times in the day where you get a more uh, detrimental blood glucose response to a certain meal. Um, and so most of the good evidence, I would say, centers around glycemic health. So what is those blood glucose responses? And most of it would center around consuming large amounts of our calories late in the day. And then certainly from eating uh, meals during biological night, uh, those things are, are quite uh, consistent. From an application point of view, you could probably make a claim that those considerations are even more important for people who could already be insulin resistant. So maybe those with metabolic syndrome, and that typically could be someone who has prediabetes, maybe type 2 diabetes, uh, maybe people who have obesity could be at higher risk of the, that metabolic syndrome. So you can make a, a case there it may be more applicable than for someone who is, let's say, a lean athlete doing lots of activity. They may have more buffer room for some of those downsides. Um, and we can talk about maybe some of the caveats there of why it may actually be beneficial for them to eat at that point. Um, the other bigger interesting questions that are being explored now is, is there a benefit to shrinking that feeding window that we consume our calories in, which is this whole area of time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating, which most people would parallel to a daily intermittent fasting type protocol where you have this set start and end time for your calories and eating within that, is that more beneficial than just consuming the same amount across the day? Um, of the data in humans, it seems there are some benefits for people to having a time-restricted uh, feeding window. But that said, trying to work out how much of is that is down to the actual timing component versus how much of it is uh, a behavioral issue, i.e. that when you restrict the amount of hours someone can consume intake, it's gonna re reduce their overall caloric intake, which is what we most notably see, reductions in calories, tend to lead to reductions in body weight in these studies. And then you tend to see reductions in uh, things like fasting glucose and fasting insulin, for example. But how much of that is, is down to just the loss of body weight from caloric restriction is, is probably worth noting. Um, however, from just a, a way to roll out a general recommendation to people, there seems to be benefit that people derive from having that restricted feeding window. And then the final thing would be is there a benefit to, uh, within that window, trying to skew more of those calories earlier in the day? 
And at least from a mechanistic point of view, you could probably make a good case on that on a circadian basis, that putting more of our calories towards the earlier parts of the day and trying to not have a large amount of those calories late in the day could be beneficial, um, again, from some of those metabolic health perspectives. Um, and then there's a number of mechanisms as to, as to why that might be the case that we can get into, but that's a kind of overview uh, for the moment. Okay, okay. Such interesting stuff because, I mean, for so long, it just has seemed basically it's black and white, right? Like here's all comes down to calories and calories out. And well, of course, you're not saying like this overrules that fact. It is not as black and white as we once thought, correct? Right. Yeah. So that's the the key thing that sometimes people miss. I think that this is not saying energy balance suddenly doesn't apply. It absolutely does. And in fact, uh, most of the evidence would be around metabolic health. Right. For some of the evidence around changing body weight or changing body composition, there is theoretically effect that could happen. However, if any of those uh, are seen to be the case, it would be down to the change in meal timing having an influence on energy expenditure. So, and, and there's potential mechanisms how this could happen. So let's say, for example, um, what one thing we know is meals consumed, say, during the day versus during biological night tend to lead to differences in diet-induced thermogenesis, so that, that calorie expenditure after consuming a meal. Now, if that was a of a meaningful um, uh, enough amount, and it prob- at the moment doesn't seem like it, it might be, um, but if, if we were to presume it was, then in that case, for the same caloric intake, you could see improvements in uh, more body fat being lost in a certain condition. Um, but it would still be in line with calories in, calories out, because you're just changing the energy expenditure component. So it doesn't override that. So any if any uh, benefit for, let's say, fat loss or uh, being more resistant to weight gain were to be seen, it would have to still come back down to some mechanism that is altering calories in, calories out. And so it could be diet-induced thermogenesis. It could be um, there seems to be differences in um, how much energy people are likely to expend during the day through just uh, uh, neat or just physical acti- light physical activity throughout the day. Um, when you change some of those parameters, like if you give them a large breakfast versus getting to skip to later in the day, you, you see some differences in how much energy they expend. Now, still with the caveat, a lot of this needs to be nailed down of is there a clear physiological benefit, but it, it could be plausible. But again, it still fits within the energy balance uh, paradigm. Right. Okay. Okay. And would you mind diving into actually the breakfast study because on a similar note? Yeah. So there's been a couple of studies that have, have looked at this. So um, one that hints at um, what I just said about the skipping breakfast versus having that large breakfast in the day was came out of the UK. It was the, the bath breakfast study or the bath breakfast uh, project where they had one group consume a large breakfast, I think before like 10 a.m. in the morning, um, quite a, a large size breakfast. And the other group skipped eating until midday and then could start eating. And what they saw in that study was the group that consumed the large breakfast were consuming, I think about 
maybe 500 calories roughly. I don't have to check the exact number, but 500 calories more per day, let's say. But over the course of the study, there was no differences in body composition changes. And so what it seemed to be accounted for is that even though they were consuming that extra 500 calories, they were expending an extra 500 calories compared to the group who had fasted. So here we have a case where that feeding in the morning leads to a behavioral component where people expend more energy through physical activity throughout the day. And so even though they're eating different amounts, there was, there was no difference in their overall energy balance. So that was one thing that hinted, well, maybe by putting more of our calories during the day, that, that could have some effect. But again, they those studies obviously weren't, weren't calorie matched for, for what we've just discussed. One other study that kind of looked at the energy distribution idea that was, was really interesting uh, came from uh, Daniela Jakubovic. And this was, a, I think, a 2013 paper where she had uh, a large breakfast, uh, a moderate lunch, and a small dinner, compared that to a small breakfast, medium lunch, and a large dinner. So there, in, in both conditions, it was a 1,400-calorie diet. Uh, breakfast was 700 calories, uh, then lunch was 500, um, and then the uh, dinner was like 200. And then the opposite condition was just flipped around the breakfast and the dinner. And there they saw pretty significant differences over the course of that study uh, in a number of the metabolic health parameters that we just mentioned, but they also saw differences in uh, weight loss. So that one wasn't as super tightly controlled as we would ideally like to be able to draw more strict conclusions as in people were consuming diets themselves and recording it as opposed to be let's say given food so we can't be super sure of how accurate that that those numbers were but that's what they were told to do and we were seeing these clear differences so that was one that hinted that maybe it's not just about the total amount that you prescribe someone to eat, but by changing where in the day they consume most of those calories, we could see some differences. Um, and on that, some of the studies that have, have digged into that issue see that in the um, groups that have like that larger breakfast, you tend to see less hunger across the whole day. So at time points in between meals. Now you'd expect that after breakfast because they've consumed more calories than the other groups. Of course, they're going to have less hunger. But even after the later meals, they don't have an elevated amount of hunger after eating that 200 calorie dinner compared to the group that had the 700 calories. And so there may be something here, again, that's tying into some of these circadian effects where um, it could be beneficial to partition more of those calories earlier in the day. Um, again, mechanistically, it's trying to piece some of these things together in a kind of jigsaw-like pattern. And we're probably talking about someone that can have a, a setup that allows for that. And mainly, again, looking at some of these things where um, metabolic health is a target or for someone who finds it difficult to alter their body composition through other means. Um, so there are some of the interesting things related to that, that breakfast or, or not breakfast type question. Such interesting stuff. So for someone that did want to implement what we're talking about here, would you recommend like as soon as possible on waking you eat or what are your recommendations there? Um, 
Actually, no. And I think this is the kind of key thing here that, again, one of those old school myths was breakfast is the most important meal of the day. As soon as you get up, you got to eat something. And if you don't, your metabolism is going to be slow or you need breakfast to trigger all this type of nonsense. And that's absolutely not what any of this chrono nutrition stuff is showing. And in fact, when I say consuming like a breakfast or consuming more of those calories earlier in the day, that doesn't mean immediately on waking. It, it, it's just the earlier part of the day. I, if you are someone who saves up nearly all their calories to the very end of the day, which is actually quite an appealing thing to do because it's nice to sit on the couch at like late in the evening, relax, and know you have all these calories to consume. If you do that, there may be some benefits, at least for some people, to taking some of those calories and just pushing them earlier in the day. So in terms of uh, what might be a, a place or, or how to conceptualize that first meal or the early meal, doesn't need to be as soon as you wake. Kind of put based on preference, but at least within the kind of first part of the day. So let's say um, anecdotally that oftentimes um, I won't eat as soon as I get up. I just, I just prefer not to, I prefer having a coffee. Um, so I'll get up, have that maybe like 7.30, but then I will have a relatively decent sized breakfast, maybe 10, 30, 11 o'clock. So again, it can be multiple hours. So it doesn't have to be strict, but you're still getting a decent sized earlier in the day. And you're trying to make sure that just in, in that kind of late part of the day, particularly the closer it gets to bedtime, that you're not having a, a ton of the, your daily calories in that window. That's what I would typically recommend to people. Um, with Within trying to apply some of this, a lot of it can be just trial and error because there are no clear conclusions I think everyone needs to do. The first thing I'll say is if trying any of these things with uh, timing or switching things around undermines any of the fundamental things that are important about diet, i.e. if it makes it more difficult for you to eat good quality food, if it makes you more difficult to be able to eat an appropriate amount of energy overall, if it becomes really super stressful, then don't do it, right? Like they're the most important things, like long-term consistent adherence to an energy appropriate diet with good quality food, consuming a decent amount of protein, fiber, all those good stuff, that, that fundamentals. Doing that is the most important. And so if anything undermines that, don't worry about it. Um, but some people may find a benefit to trying around a certain feeding window, right? So if someone does eat as soon as they get up in the morning and then they're kind of eating throughout the day and they eat all the way until they're just about to go to bed, that could be a 15, 16 hour window, which is actually quite common that we see in right. some of the observational studies. And so maybe trialing at least first something relatively easy, like a 12 hour feeding window. Okay, I'm going to have my first meal if, it, if that's 8 a.m., my last meal has to be by 8 p.m. And then you can kind of think of, okay, how can I maybe push more of my calories slightly earlier in the day so that 8 p.m. meal or my 7.30 p.m. meal isn't like really heavy and high in calories. And just see if, do that for like a week and see if that, that feels good. Um, the um, so, so that would be one thing to, to be aware of. And then just being mindful of not having a meals like really close to sleep time or as we're approaching biological night uh, for those final meals. Again, if they can be skewed more towards like high protein meals, but maybe not super heavy in carbohydrate and fat, that may also work out well, just because I've said like our 
carbohydrate and fat metabolism isn't as efficient as, as we get towards biological night as it is earlier in the day. Now, there are some clear caveats that would probably apply to many of the people uh, listening to this podcast. For example, if you've just lifted some weights in the hour or two before that time, you're actually much better able to handle carbohydrates than even if we are more insulin resistant. Because what uh, lifting weights will do, that, that muscle contraction causes the movement of a certain glucose transporter in the muscle cell to come to the surface of that cell. And even independent of the action of insulin allows us to basically suck up glucose into that muscle cell. And so for that reason, people who, have, who are quite active may not have those deleterious uh, effects of, of blood glucose with that carbohydrate feeding, even though it's at night because they've had that, um, that activity earlier. Um, in, in the same vein for athletes, they will have different priorities with their diet of what they're trying to do. And this may not be as big an issue to them. They probably have also a bit more buffer room and, um, they may be just be metabolically healthier that they can just tolerate this better too. Um, so with those kind of caveats in mind, it might be worth just trying some of those other things that we've mentioned. Okay. Okay. So all, all super helpful. So basically it sounds like ideally if you, if you're not training at night um, and if it doesn't take away from your overall adherence, we're partitioning more of our calories towards the morning. But again, the most important factor here is your overall ability to control your intake, correct? Right. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, yeah, if it doesn't matter what your timing of your meals looks like, if you are trying to maintain a certain body composition, but you're just eating way too many calories, right. it's just not going to work. Uh, so, and, and in the same vein, if you're trying to be healthy, it doesn't matter if you have a, certain timing regimen but your food quality isn't good or you're not eating enough fiber or you're eating just like tons and tons of saturated fat it's probably not a good idea for your health so again it's all couched within the context of we have these fundamentals that we want to stick to and one component that there is at least um some plausibility to is paying attention to timing so whether that's the length of the feeding window we have each day where the majority of our intake occurs during the day um, and how that is skewed across the day um, and where the bulk of those calories are consumed might be something worth considering, particularly for people who are trying to be mindful of um, controlling their blood sugar, for example. Uh, it would be maybe even more applicable in some of those circumstances. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So I wanted to dive into then shift workers a bit and what action steps. So let's say, for example, nurses that work at night and kind of have to, for the most part, disregard all this. And I'm working through Mac Nutrition right now and the joke in there is like, tell them to get a new job, right? But realistically, like what action steps do you get pe give people like that who like, hey, I can't apply any of this, but I do see it somewhat taking a toll on my health. Yeah, so here we still don't really have any clear evidence-based recommendations per se that are like a consensus position. However, again, if we look at some of the stuff that's going on mechanistically and try and work back from there, there may be some things that I think are worth trying that physiologically make sense, but I will say pragmatically they may be 
quite difficult to implement. So for anyone that's listening who is a nurse or a doctor or a midwife uh, or any type of job like that, I completely understand that doing a 12-hour night shift when it's busy and stuff is getting crazy, it may not also, it may not always be easy to uh, think about food choices first. And, and so I completely understand. However, that said, going on what we've discussed about fat metabolism and carbohydrate metabolism at nighttime, um, that particularly during biological night, that kind of gets screwed up. And we, if you have a carb heavy, fat heavy meal during that time point, you may see more of these deleterious excursions uh, of carbohydrate and fat after the meal. We can try and leave a window of time during that, that, that kind of danger zone that's so to speak. So uh, to kind of put some arbitrary numbers on, let's say between uh, 1 a.m. to 5 a.m., right? That, that's like banging in the middle of that night where we're probably going to see those worse effects. Trying to not have any carb-heavy, fat-heavy meals during that time frame. And so that may mean if you are doing a night shift, let's say before you go in for that night shift, having a pretty decent-sized meal at that point, uh, you can have a, a big meal at, th- at that stage that, that would take care of a good chunk of your calories, maybe even having something at after you've finished your your shift, which would be the following morning. And then even as you get into work and you've been there a couple of hours, you can have some sort of meal then, let's say, uh, before midnight comes. But then in in that time during the middle of the night, either a complete fast, but that, again, pragmatically may not be an option for most people because they're going to be rushed off their feet in most cases and just trying to do that is very difficult. Uh, And if not, maybe focusing on high-protein, low fat, low carb snacks and meals during that time, because we know from the sports nutrition literature that you can see complete protein uh, digestion throughout nighttime hours. So even when people are asleep, they've done like intranasal um, uh, uh, protein intake and you see complete digestion of that protein, uh, no problem. And so what you can do then is allow people to be eating, but you're not going to see those same peaks in blood glucose or free fatty acids because you're avoiding carbs and fat at that time. Right. So that may be things like, can they bring in like a protein shake? So let's say some low fat yogurt, uh, maybe mixed with a small handful of berries or something like that. Um, so good quality, high protein snacks uh, during that time point or fasting for a good number of those hours and consuming most of the calories either side of that window of, of the middle of the night may be a strategy that allows to at least mitigate some of those deleterious downsides we see from a, a metabolism point of view. And um, that said, that's something that still needs to be investigated of how that actually impacts long-term health. Does it actually play out? Um, do we see enough of a difference to, to warrant it? But that's something that could make some mechanistic sense to me on paper at least right okay so like you said this is all still a very new field of research and we definitely don't know everything there is to know about it but i feel like so many applicable takeaways for the listener there um before we move on from this topic of chrononutrition is there anything else you would like to add anything you feel like you skimmed over that you wanted to elaborate on or do you feel good with all that um no i I think there's plenty there and i'm trying i don't want to burden too much in there i think just to kind of reiterate those those things that we do know that lead us to some 
general heuristics that probably aren't going to hurt but could be beneficial but that we still need to confirm so for example avoiding eating at biological night trying to not have a lot of your calories skewed towards the very end of the day uh, trying not to have erratic eating patterns and by that i mean just having dramatically different meal times day to day or how many times you're eating um and then I think sticking within those and then maybe even thinking about having what is my eating window look like and I'm not eating from as soon as I get up to the very end of the day and all the way through, um, having a restricted window can help a certain number of people within that caveat of the, the average person that we're talking about. So yeah, I, I would kind of just reiterate those points. Um, but um, yeah, I think there's there's plenty there. And, and there's some places that I've, I've written about this that people can get some more of the details if they want to nerd out on that. But um, yeah, there, there's, I think we, we, we covered most of the main things that I'd like to bring up. Perfect, perfect. And then, like I mentioned before, um, I'll absolutely link up your the ultimate evidence-based um, conference, your presentation on this, because I believe that was a free presentation. And then you had a great article for Stronger by Science on this as well. I'll be sure to link those two up in the show notes. Um, if you don't mind, man, with your last couple of minutes, I'd love to just get your take on a couple of different topics within nutrition. Sound good? Sure. Sure. Let's do it. So first and foremost, we have this often put out there, and this is still something you see quite a bit, um, anti-aggressive fat loss. Like slow and steady is the only way to go if you are pushing your clients for rapid fat loss. They're going to regain all the weight and basically you don't care about their health. Do you have any mm. insights into, because I, I feel like that's something that we see a lot, even in the more mm. like critical evidence-based side of things. Do you have any just takes on that, this whole aggressive versus slow and steady fat loss debate? I do. And I've actually, I think it's about five years old now at this stage. I wrote like a, a three-part series that mainly touched on, on some of the stuff around aggressive dieting. And I think a lot of the, from an evidence-based point of view, I think a lot of the resistance to going very fast probably just stems from uh, the group of people who's mainly interested in bodybuilding and maybe either they're coaching there or compete there themselves, where quite clearly in most of those circumstances, you wouldn't want to go super aggressive. I think for someone, for example, doing a contest prep, doing a really aggressive diet is probably not the best way to hold on to the most amount of uh, muscle mass that you have. Right. Um, however, I think outside of a specific context, like doing contest prep, um, most of those assumptions people have around the downsides either just don't seem to play out or in my opinion, aren't necessarily that big a deal. So for example, uh, one thing that, uh, you, you mentioned that is probably the most common one is, oh, if you go really aggressive with a diet, then that person just going to re is more likely to regain that weight back. And it's all going to come back compared to if they did it slower. When you look at most of the uh, research on weight regain and weight uh, loss maintenance, particularly for people who are categorized as um, overweight or having obesity, you actually tend to see better long-term outcomes when their initial weight loss was of a higher magnitude. So if they lost more in that early phase, then if you do a follow-up, say 12, 18 months later, you tend to see the people who lost the most in that initial phase or who dropped the most in a certain period of time early on 
have the better outcome in the long term. And so what that means is um, there's one particular paper I tend to refer people to here by, by Lisa Knackers, where they had a group that was slow, moderate, and then a large or a rapid amount of, of weight loss in an early, uh, I think it's a three-month period. And they looked at how much people lost in that period of time. And within that three months, and they categorized them as either being uh, slow, moderate, or fast, depending on how much they lost. So I think the slow group was maybe lost about five kilos on average. The fast group was about 13 kilos. Now, 12 uh, months later, so this is the 18-month mark, they did a follow-up to see where people were at. And there had been some weight regain, but the weight regain was the exact same across all the groups. It was about one to two kilos of weight regain. So those that obviously lost the 13 kilos up front were in a much better position. Right. Um, and, and you see that kind of applied across the board in, in, in quite a lot of studies. Now, there is some that don't always show that. There, there is some that would suggest that uh, that might not always be the case. But I think it definitely shows us that it's not this guaranteed thing that if you go faster, you will regain all that weight back. So I think that's the first thing of a challenge. The second thing that people talk about is the loss of muscle mass. Um, and again, like I said, that's a worthwhile consideration, particularly for someone doing bodybuilding, where at the end of their diet, they have to step on stage and essentially try and show off the amount of muscle they have. So any loss of muscle is going to be problematic. For most people, though, uh, number one, if someone has to lose weight for health reasons and would benefit their health to drop some weight, even if there was a small amount of muscle mass loss, it's probably not a, a big deal. Uh, second, for muscle that you have lost, it's much easier to regain that than to build new muscle in the first place. Uh, and this comes back down to something called uh, the myonuclei domain theory, where once you've built muscle, you have these myonuclei that hang around. And so if you detrain or you lose muscle from this restricted diet, you can regain that muscle back quite quickly once you start to refeed again or train. And then the biggest point is within a sensible context. So in other words, if someone is doing resistance training and eating a high protein diet, then even if you're going aggressively with your weight loss, for the majority of people, the amount of muscle loss of actual loss of muscle tissue is going to be quite trivial in most cases. And like I said, even if there is some, uh, as soon as you go back to uh, maintenance and eating enough food and training properly with your normal volumes, that muscle will come back quite quickly. So I think most of the reasons that people are worried about it is uh, don't tend to play out. Um, I, I do think, however, on the flip side of it, it people can shift too far the other way and think that aggressive dieting is a strategy that I need to roll out to everyone. Right. Um, and it's certainly not the case. It can be contraindicated for a variety of reasons. And in fact, it probably wouldn't be what you would use with most people. It would still be a minority of people but it's just about um, a coach having that ability to have a good screening process to work out, okay, who should do this and who shouldn't, um, or for an individual to work out, is this something that would work for me or is actually there's some red flags here that it would be problematic. Um, so I think understanding that is probably the first point. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, man. I feel like, again, it just so much depends on you as a coach. Like if a client comes on, for example, hey, I want to learn how to like – go out a couple times a week, work lots of drinks, work lots of social events, all these different things into my lifestyle and really like have it feel very balanced. I don't want to feel like I'm 
dieting super hard, then like if we're putting them on an aggressive diet right away, again, they're probably not going to adhere to it. But again, also, I think on the flip side, like I know when I first started coaching, I was very much on the like, okay, slow and steady fat loss is the only way to go. I had many clients that never actually got to the point where they were much healthier because I was like, nope, nope, we're just going to take it slow. Like I know it doesn't seem like you're making progress right now, mm. but like that's just how it has to be. So I think that that's also on the flip side of like, we have to weigh both of these things. Very, very, very interesting um, topic for sure. And then I think like people will often throw out there too, like it kind of as you alluded to with how quickly your muscle comes back when we get back to maintenance, right? When we get back to eating more, I think the metabolism or how much metabolism is in flux often gets underestimated with many people. Like we could say, okay, you're metabolism is slower when you're dieting more aggressively but then if we actually look at that okay because you are eating less food like the thermic effect of food is lower maybe need is lower as well but also we're back to a point where you can eat more again sooner rather than later so i think again it's something that gets kind of twisted around more than necessarily need be yeah absolutely and exactly what you say if you have the there are downsides to uh going on a more aggressive diet um, but some of them get balanced out by the fact you're doing it for a shorter period of time. Right. Uh, I also think that's where some people go wrong with it. They think, oh, I can diet on like really low calories because so-and-so said it's okay to do. It's like, yeah, you can do that. But with the caveat that you're going to diet for a shorter period of time than otherwise, right? right. You can't say, oh, I'm going to diet slowly for 10 weeks. But now uh, Danny said it's okay to diet on as low a calories as possible. So I'm going to do that for 10 weeks and look at all the weight I'm going to lose. It's like, well, no, you should probably modify the, the, the duration of that diet too. Um, so, but with that said, I think, yeah, have having that knowledge is really useful because you can then apply it to context where it may be beneficial. Um, if you have an athlete, let's say, um, and it's the off season, now might be an opportunity where you can go aggressive for, only three or four weeks because they're going to start preseason training again. Whereas what you don't want to do is say, let's have a 16 week diet. And now you have a, uh, a football player getting back into the gym and getting back in playing games. And now they're also trying to diet whilst they're trying to play. Right. Probably not going to be the best. Whereas you could have like got there, uh, some of the excess body fat down in like a quick burst for three or four weeks um, presuming that they were willing to do that. A lot of them probably wouldn't be in an off season, probably in party mode at that time point. Uh, but with that, you can do things like that, right? Or someone who has um, an already built uh, level of nutrition knowledge, I think is probably in the best place to do it. I think for most people just trying to learn about some good nutrition habits, you probably wouldn't do it with. But someone that's been doing it for a long period of time and says, oh, I'm, I'm going to maybe run a dieting block now. Um and I don't mind actually being a bit more restrictive for a few weeks because on the flip side, it allows me to do it in a shorter period of time. Right. And so people just have that psychological preference that they don't mind being a bit more restrictive day to day because they know the diet is going to be a shorter period of time. Other people would hate that. And they're like, no, I, I can do a much milder diet. I just don't want to cut back uh, too much like that. Um, and then there's other contraindications for people who maybe have a, a problematic relationship with food already, who maybe have had uh, disordered eating patterns in the past that relate to excessive restriction of diet, that you would work on many other things without any diet 
uh, for a while first, as opposed right. to jumping to this. So yeah, it's, it's just another potential tool that someone can use. And rather than paint anything as all good or all bad, we have to understand what can it be used for and when. And so 100%. that's what I can think of it, yeah. I love it. Just like everything within coaching, it's all so context dependent on where the client is coming from. So one last question I wanted to ask you, and you can be as brief on this as possible or as needed, because I know you're pretty short on time here, but within this on a similar topic, if we're touching on the breaking up the diet or diet breaks and refeeds, do you, are you someone personally that like with clients, you recommend implementing diet breaks and refeeds often? Um, we have used them with some of our coaching clients on occasion. Um, I don't think there's a need to do it religiously or always proactively. Um, I do think there are benefits for some people. Um, again, at the moment, most of it is still either um, anecdotal or the evidence is kind of suggestive of what may have an effect. Right. Now, there are some people doing trials on this right now that would hopefully give uh, some more concrete stuff to this. Uh, Jackson Pios in Australia is probably leading the charge on this and related to like lean athletic populations of right. looking at this intermittent dieting um, uh, type protocol. So hopefully we'll have even more conclusions coming soon. Um, I think there are benefits. I'm quite confident about the psychological benefits to it. Right. And we've definitely seen that anecdotally. So for that alone, if, if even if there doesn't end up being a physiological benefit, I think having things like either diet breaks, um, having periods of maintenance, maintenance blocks are beneficial. Um, I just, my, my personal preference is I, I see those as being uh, like a, a diet break for one, two weeks or a maintenance block of a month or more as, as being quite useful consistently. I think with something like shorter refeeds that tends to, um, maybe be more related to someone that's doing bodybuilding or maybe someone that's doing a quite hard diet. I think for the average person, you probably don't need to refeed them as such. Um, what we'd probably end up doing is it would be almost a, uh, not an accidental refeed, but a, a refeed for other reasons than a physiological one. I, you want to give someone a psychological break or you want to allow them to go and have a meal with their family at the weekend. So you just let them have higher calories. So it turns into a refeed, but you didn't do it because of some special plan to manipulate their physiology. Whereas that, I think refeeds are super common within say natural bodybuilding and probably for good reason. Like when I look at of all the coaches in natural bodybuilding that I respect and see nearly across the board, most of them do some degree of having refeed days uh, in, in most weeks of their diet. It's like, yeah, that's probably for a good reason. Um, so for, for the average person, I think, yeah, definitely uh, use of a diet break um, is, is beneficial. I think maintenance blocks as well work well. So if someone has a certain amount of weight to lose, we always try and periodize that um, with our clients. So instead of saying, okay, here's where you want to end up, let's just keep dieting until you get there. It's like, okay, that's how much this person needs to lose. If we were to look at that on an average amount of weight loss per week uh, for this person, let's say we're presuming they're going to drop about half a kilo a week. Um, then we're going to break that into maybe blocks of time of like eight to 10 weeks at most at a time uh, for this given person. And then in between we'll have a maintenance block or maybe a two week diet break. 
And then we can have this periodized structure where instead of this, this continuous diet for the rest of the year for someone, now they can have these focused phases that they focus on dieting. Um, and one of the nice things about breaking that diet up into smaller dieting phases with, say, a maintenance block in the middle is that maintenance block allows them to practice the art of maintenance, which right. most people never got to do. They, the yo-yo between dieting, gaining it back, dieting. And now we know that the most important thing is at the end of the diet, can you maintain that long term? So if you can practice what a block of maintenance looks like for a month at a time, and you've done a few of those, then you know how to transition between that and dieting. And so that hopefully would allow you to build some of the skills for the longer term. So for those reasons, I'm, I'm, uh, I like the idea of having like longer periodization thought around our diet and using uh, diet breaks and, and maintenance block for that reason. And then, yeah, for people who are probably in a kind of bodybuilding type context, I think, yeah, refeeds seem to be beneficial for, for a number of reasons. But um, hopefully more of that research kind of answers the questions as to why and, and what's going on. Right. Again, kind of a field we don't seem to know a lot about. And it has been very interesting to see like diet breaks and refeeds, like the view on early diet breaks specifically shift from like, this is something you have to do to keep your hormones in a good place, keep your metabolism in a good place too. Uh, it's probably potentially mostly psychological, but even then if it helps the client get to their end point, then in a better mm -hmm. place. And like you said, this idea of practicing maintenance is so important for actually creating long-term change, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think with the, like a, a, a refeed structure where let's say someone has two to three higher calorie days per week when they're, when they're dieting um, and you have a bodybuilder doing that, it allows them then to have at least for two to three days an intake that looks like something that close to a regular right. uh, intake. Um, and so again, it allows that just like that psychological lift for a couple of days. It allows that kind of big intake of carbohydrate you can kind of time it relative to that person's training sessions for that week. So that those, those toughest sessions are going to coincide with the time where they're feeling the best of that higher increase of calories and more uh, carbohydrate in their system. And so for, for a number of those reasons, even if it's not doing anything related to certain hormone manipulation or not, it is going to be beneficial. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's good reason why people like that structure and find it appealing and find a benefit to it. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So many good takeaways from the show, man. And again, I'm super appreciative of you being here. Um, I want to be super respectful of your time. So before I let you go, um, we just tell the listeners where they can find you and anything else at all you would like to throw out there. Yeah, sure, man. So I think the best place is probably just uh, sigmanutrition.com, S-I-G-M-A. Uh, we have the podcast that they can find will be linked up there. We have a series of written Sigma statements, which are essentially long form written position stands that we put out on various confusing topics related to nutritional science, lay out our position on it with supporting evidence as to why. Um, and they can kind of stand as this is why we take this stance and, and here's the evidence for it. Um, and then whilst they're on the website, they can check other stuff that, between our coaching and uh, other resources that we recommend uh, and so on. And then on social media, probably Instagram is the easiest place to get me. And that's just Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. And for people on Twitter, I am at nutrition Danny and yeah, any of those places I'm happy to take questions or comments, anything like that. Perfect. I will link all that up in the show notes. And again, thank you for being here, man.
Oh, man, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for uh, the great questions and thanks for asking me on.